0: Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where we try to solve the world's problems through the miracle of carbohydrates, one recipe at a time, with host Marissa Rothkoff and her dog, Bosco. Welcome to The Secret Life of Cookies, where my guest this week is the brilliant and crazily accomplished writer Nell Scovel, who has written for Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Lisa Simpson. We baked my dad's favorite biscotti and discussed how humor can make a comeback in the Biden administration. And also why being judgmental isn't always so bad, even if people judge you for it. Welcome, Nell Scovel, to The Secret Life of Cookies. or As my friends in the UK, have started to call it The Secret Life of Biscuits, which is just that sort of pretentious that I really like. Um, So thank you, Bruce Robinson, for calling it The Secret Life of Biscuits. Um, You come to us, Well, I've known you a reasonable amount of time, but you have a very long and storied list of wonderfulnesses that you have done (laughs) from Spine Magazine, Vanity Fair, you worked on the New Heart Show, Late Night with David Letterman, One of the first women to write for The Simpsons. You most had a Simpsons episode come out in December, which was hilarious. Yeah, I set
1: a record for the longest amount of time between writing one script and writing your next script for The Simpsons. It was 30 years, which is pretty hard to beat, although apparently there's someone um, on Doctor Who who came very close. (laughs) Wow,
0: those are Pretty seminal shows, right?
1: Yeah.
0: The Simpsons, Doctor Who.
1: Well, it's um, got to be a cult favorite, I think, to yeah. to be either on that long or to leave and come back like Doctor <laughs> Who did.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. And and want to be there with it. And The Simpsons has been brilliant all along. You just made it more brilliant. Oh, well, thank you. Well, you know.
1: Well, um, I did, since we're, this is a cooking show, I should say, I wrote the Fugu episode where Homer... <laughs> eats blowfish and thinks he's going to die. And what's so incredible about that is when I pitched it 30 years ago, sushi wasn't in every supermarket in America. Like it was a fairly new phenomena. I remember when I went to my first sushi restaurant. Me too. Because I was in college and it was such a big deal. Do you know who I
0: went to my first sushi restaurant with? No. Ted Scoville, your brother, my brother.
1: That's so funny. <laughs> and I was
0: so <laughs> nervous to like, I was like nervous to be with him. And though um, so he's a very nice guy. I, he shouldn't have made me nervous, but that was me. And I had raw fish in my mouth and I didn't know how to swallow. I was just like, um, I yeah. don't know. How to, oh, this is a lot. It's too much. But I'm having sushi for dinner tonight. So I'm really, you know, I've worked through it.
1: Well, this is another point, though, to make at the top, is that we're fam fans, like we're right. each fans of the other's family. Yes. I sure. know your brother, you know my brother. There's uh, There should be a word, probably a French word, not a German word for when no, no, no. you enjoy someone's <laughs> whole family. <laughs> Do you think the French actually enjoy other people's families, though? Yeah. Um, yeah. When they're drunk. Sure. Oh, <laughs> look, so I'm finally preheated enough to put my cookies in. So. Very good. We, so <laughs> to
0: anybody who's listening, Nell is following the first and most important rule of baking, which is you really do need to preheat your oven. People are like, eh, why not? because the temperature in your oven fluctuates from 250 to 500 to whatever until it hits the right temperature. So you're more likely to burn something if you don't preheat your oven. Did you know that when you woke up this morning now? No. So. No, you didn't. No, didn't. Um, but you know, I have not finished going through the list that's you because there is Sabrina the Teenage Witch.
1: Right, I created that and was the showrunner. And just like an aside,
0: I went to college with, I just want to bring this, every single thing has to tie back to one of us. I went to college with Nina Gladier, whose father was the creator. Yes, George Gladier. Right, and she was the, na- in a sense, the namesake for Sabrina. Okay. Um, The world, if anybody's wondering, is only this big, which leads me to sort of one of the themes of I I hope this podcast, which should be, don't be a shitty person because everybody (laughs) knows everybody. Um, You also helped write a reasonably well-known book called Lean In with Sheryl Sandberg. (laughs) I did. Which then, I think sort of the perfect follow-on was your own book, which was called Just the Funny Parts about coping in Hollywood as a chick or a woman, as we like to call them.
1: Um, so people always ask, like, how did you cross paths with Cheryl Sandberg? I was in Hollywood. She was in tech. And when I tell them it's so obvious, I met her through Facebook. Seriously? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We had a mutual friend who actually worked at Facebook and she was starting to give more speeches and she had two young kids and was a COO of a, then not public company, but a growing company. And,
0: um, most, most young mothers meet their friends through Facebook anyway. So it seems so apropos. Yeah.
1: Anyway, so they asked if, um, this mutual friend said, maybe you could help her and, um, she was giving a speech at Annapolis. There's there's this very famous Forrestal lecture, and um, I you know she she knew what she wanted to say, but I helped her organize and hone it and smooth it, and it was actually the first speech where she used the phrase "lean in," and um, and then we worked on I helped her with the Barnard speech, the commencement address, which became sort of the spine for the book. Um, But I had seen her TED Talk, which, um, so it's interesting. In 2009, I had kind of come out and written this big piece about Mm -hmm. how hard it was to be a woman working in late night TV, specifically my experience at the Letterman show. And at the same time, Cheryl was giving this amazing TED Talk, which is called Why We Have So Few Women Leaders, Mm -hmm. which like taught me more in 10 minutes than I, I had ever known before about the cultural expectations of women and how they affect our choices, which we think we have free will. We don't. We don't <laughs> uh, okay. anyway, so that that, that was the connection there.
0: That's amazing. And so what was what was the process of writing the book like with her? And you know, so did did she, you write it through direct message
1: or was it something different? <laughs> Um, So she had a she has a big job and we work mostly weekends and at night, Um, we were both iterators, I think I only saw her twice during the whole process it was mostly an email, I was working on this crazy show called warehouse 13 on the sci fi channel. So it was really odd for me because during the day I'd be like, um, you know, what if they found you know Pavlov's dog and when they (laughs) pet it they start to salivate, or and uh, and then at night you know I'd be reading, you know, turning her outlines into chapters. But it's really exciting that I got to do that.
0: It is exciting. Did it help? Sort of. I don't know. Sort of. Jelly, your thoughts and your feelings about having been a woman in, because I mean, you'd started with the 2009, like that was Vanity Fair? Yeah, yeah. And then, but did it help you put together your thoughts even further about it? it let me just, so let me go back a second. Was it easy being a woman? Is it easy being
1: a woman working in Hollywood now? Is it easy being a woman <laughs> working anywhere? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is we think it's hard in Hollywood and we think it's hard in tech and we think it's hard in the military and but it turns out it's hard in philosophy departments. It's hard in law firms. It's you know, hard in neurosurgery. I mean, there's really
0: it's hard at grocery stores, it's hard to work at the CBS. I mean, yeah. the stories I hear like from
1: my students who are all like college age and stuff. Yeah, is working on lean in and realizing what I had done wrong. And an example of that is um, whenever I negotiated, actually this happened at Spy, um, where I thought that what you would, the way you would be appreciated would be to go in with a list of all the, your accomplishments and all the things you had done. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, it turns out that works for a man. But if you're a woman, you gotta be a team player. You got to come across as communal. You got to talk about the team. You got to talk about how happy you are to be part of that team and not to talk about individual accomplishments.
0: You're giving me dry mouth, by the way. I feel very, so so that's what I've been doing wrong. Does that Uh, ring true for you? Well, to me, it rings true in that, the part that rings true is I feel I talked about this with Eugene Carroll that I'm um, programmed to say I'm sorry and I'm programmed okay. to um, accept the lowest salary, the lowest, you know, sure. Oh, do you want me to do that for free? You know what? Let me do extra and I'll do it for free. I mean, oh, part you know- of it is being a freelance writer. Yeah. So that's just sort of part and parcel. Um, please uh, support my Patreon. I don't have them.
1: Um, do you know about the favor penalty? No. Oh, this is so great. So they've done research. This is in Lean In. And it turns out in workplaces, women are often asked to do favors, right? Arrange the birthday party, stay Mm -hmm. late, make sure the pages get collated correctly. And the thing is, when a woman does a favor, she doesn't get a benefit for it because we assume she's communal, she's warm, she's maternal, she wants to help. But if you ask a woman to do a favor and she says no, she gets punished because she's just being a bitch. The reverse, when you ask a man to do a favor and he says yes, he gets benefits. There's rewards, it, it counts towards promotions or, or you know, trips. And if he says no, there's zero penalty. So now step back, a woman who says yes ends up in the same place with a man who says no. Awesome, yeah. I mean, it's, um, it, the system's
0: rigged. This, I'm thinking that the system may be rigged. Have you seen a change in the system though over time? No. <laughs> 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 Did, Cheryl, in your book, inspired you while you were writing it, but also taught you things. But then it feels to me that in your book, Just the Funny Parts, you had to let it all out. Like you had to expose the in- industry
1: clearly for what it is, is, not was, is. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I did call it just the funny parts because I did not want to dwell on a lot of the bad stuff and and there was a lot of bad stuff and, you know, the, the main thrust of the book is... Um, you know, you rise up fighting, or you go down fighting. <laughs> and either way, you're fighting. Um, but, you, you know, if you can laugh along the way, it makes it a lot easier. It's a thoroughly enjoyable book, and yet
0: also eye-opening. I, I, I heartily recommend it. Heartily, not hardly. It's hardly. my ang- I hardly dare you. That. But you know what
1: my favorite response has been is I get a lot of notes from people saying, as soon as I finished your book, I took out a script that I had half finished, um, but put away and I started writing again. because it really is a love letter to writing and how much um, I enjoy it and how I've moved between, you know mag sports writing was my first, yeah. Uh, professional job and then I moved into magazines and then I moved into tv and into movies and then into speeches and then into books and so it really um, for a writer I think there's a lot of good information in there absolutely but you and I first met that would go back a while at spy
0: magazine uh smart fun funny fearless home of Kurt Anderson and Graydon Carter and many other wonderful and amazing people. Um, You said to me at one point that it was the best place for a comedy writer to get her start, why?
1: Oh, because They they real they they push me to be mean, <laughs> but you know in a, in a deserved way. I mean, spy was so great because it really the whole point was to hoist people on their own petard, and it mm-hmm. you know it wasn't just pointing fingers. It was really getting people to reveal their their true selves, and um, boy, I would you know for every. New young writer, I hope they get in a situation where someone doesn't say, You've gone too far, pull back," and instead says, Go further, you know mm-hmm. push push against that edge. We had um,
0: Donald Trump as the, f- the focus for a lot of the stuff at SPY. And that's how I explain SPY to people. I'm like, well, SPY is where we got short-fingered Bulgarian from, right? So you really had some wonderful uh, petards to hoist. No, people had some wonderful petards to be hoisted upon. And one of them was Donald Trump. And that's how I, I kind of explained it. Yeah,
1: and then the, the first um, the first issue had the 10 most embarrassing New Yorkers and Donald Trump was on the list. Um, so it those the... Those years were hard, man, for so many reasons, but just psychologically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then recently we also had him back, which also was uh,
0: challenging psychologically. Um, you were one of the liberal media elites, I think. After you know, like, and lived in California, but you you left. Why did you you left California? You weren't happy being that kind of coastal elite. You want to be a different coastal elite.
1: Well, I've always had these dual, um, you know, professions with between New York where publishing is and LA where TV was. Although, you know, I've directed a couple of movies and that was always in Vancouver. And then um, this last show, Warehouse 13 was shot in Toronto. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, and and actually, so I'm from Massachusetts. I'm from Newton, Massachusetts. Um, and when Trump won, I had this visceral reaction that just said, I want to go home.
0: <laughs> and I, I, be in I, your safe live, place.
1: I live a quarter of a mile from Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> and it just makes me feel safer.
0: You could see her like walking her dog. You could possibly hang out with Bailey, her dog. I've
1: seen I Bailey in the
0: window. <gasps>
1: I have.
0: Really? Oh, God, I would become a little sickly groupy around that.
1: She called me I, early in, you know, when she used to call donors, it was really yeah. funny. And it, it was on the phone, and I was like, are you AI? And she, <laughs> I was like,
0: no. <laughs> no, I'm really here. This is Bailey sitting next to me. You, you sort of seem to imply that uh, L.A. is not quite the liberal uh, bastion that, we, that the Republicans tell us it is.
1: Well, there's a there's a lot of money there, and and like Wall Street, I think that you get people who are like, well, I don't like a, Trump's policies about immigration, but
0: you know, right. and that was the same line during Reagan too. I uh, yeah, I don't really think I jibe with this, but I've got to preserve my money. Yes, yes, yeah. At least, at least they were being um, straightforward about it, which is. Um, Sort of like, I mean, you could have moved to Cancun. I mean, that's today's fun story. Oh, Mr. Um, Cruz, Mr. Sorry, not sorry. Someone reception.
1: It's blame your daughter at work day. <laughs> the other you know, one I really loved was um, anyone else realized Ted Cruz had no problem crossing a border to give his family a better life? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Perfect, that's absolutely perfect. Um, I think we should like, I, I actually taught in my class today how to say you're sorry and mean oh. it. Because, um, and I was very pleased to see that my, my students really got it. That saying, I'm sorry, that's how my trip to Cancun was perceived doesn't count as an apology. Right. Um, and apparently, they left the dog in the house no. by itself. Who does that? I mean, I'm sure it was being fed, but no. And the dog's name is Snowflake.
1: <laughs> Isn't that what's the Simpsons' it's Snowball? I think is Snowball's dog. But you know what I love about these jokes? Oh, Santa's is- little helper is the dog on the Simpsons. Oh, Snowball the cat, maybe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah um
1: <laughs> is you know jokes are so much purer now you know for four years we had laughs but underneath it all there was always like oh uh, he's still <gasps> president <laughs> and that's why i think remember the bernie meme with mittens i'm like remember it was a month ago remember um, <laughs> just about it could have been a year ago who, i who, don't know there is no, no sense anymore. of time Um, I think the reason that was so delightful was that it was like the first meme after he was gone. And it was just this pure release of joy without then having to go, oh, he's still president. Exactly. I think the difference
0: between, well, I mean, you tell me, you're a professional. The difference between comedy, I mean, what was comedy during Trump versus what will comedy be during Biden? Has, will it emerge as something? Is it going to like emerge as something else if you can kind of, you know, paint it with broad brushstrokes or will it revert back to something during uh, pre Trump days? Are we going back to basics? I mean, that, the yeah. Bernie meme was really quite pleasant, right? It was enjoyable.
1: Right. Timeless. And although, think about it like, well, it was just like a grumpy old man wearing very specific mittens. Although I just saw too, you know, they landed the rover on Mars and someone had a shot where Bernie was sitting there with his mittens on Mars. But I think the hardest part of, of comedy during Trump was, you know, laughs are often found by taking a concept or situation to an absurd extreme. Mm-hmm. And the problem with Trump is that his real life actions we're, we're already extreme. So that limited the kind of jokes you can make. For example, like this, this is a kind of black humor that no longer worked. If you said, um, they're separating families at the border. What are they gonna do next? Put kids in cages? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, <laughs> you know, yesterday, you know, make it, make it easier for the guards to rape them. Like yesterday's black humor became our reality. And it, it's um, my friend, Bill Prady, who created the Big Bang Theory um, posted a really great tweet. I'm gonna read it. He wrote, dear fellow comedy writers, Donald, Tr- Donald Trump is currently touting a COVID-19 cure from a poisonous plant that he heard about from the My Pillow guy. Good luck with your jokes.
0: That it, that's it. That perfectly
1: sums it up. (laughs) And so things were so dark, you couldn't like make them darker. It it was really hard. Um, And the other thing is, I I think, you know, comedy requires context in ways that a, a lot of other art forms don't. And they they jokes build off of shared experiences or shared cultural knowledge. Right. So there are there are universal human experiences that transcend time. Mm-hmm. And they actually they found graffiti in Pompeii that are jokes and they reveal certain subjects that have always been funny. Such as uh, farts and and misogyny. It's evergreen. <laughs>
0: <laughs> farts and misogyny.
1: Yeah. But But there is, um, my friend, Randy Singer, who's great, she wrote Mrs. Doubtfire, said, um, people often ask me why I think right-wing comedy doesn't exist or isn't funny. Why there are no successful right-wing humorous counterpoints to John Oliver, John Stewart, Trevor Noah, or Randy Rainbow. My answer, humor requires an element of truth. So, and I agree with that completely. I I think you need, and that's the shared experience, right? Right, And
0: that's what made Trump so challenging because the truth was just so difficult.
1: Right. People, someone else I know said, I'm mocking and I'm ridiculing and I'm scared. (laughs) (laughs) That is, that's what we're all like, that's what we're all still like
0: shuddering from still, right? I'm sort of waiting for it. And so far, you know, how do you make jokes about the Biden administration?
1: I don't know, I saw somewhere that, um, for example, that he a headline about the White House, um, Biden's bringing back fires in the Oval Office. And I thought, well, it's nice to hear about a president and a fire without the word dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you're go- so you're going back to basics, and you're still making jokes about Trump, because but that's Right. We can't let that go. Um, and that is, you know, Mel Brooks always said that you make fun of Hitler because that cuts him down to size. Um, and that's, especially now that he's no longer president. It's, it's, uh, um, you know, Rush Limbaugh is another one who, you know. I Rest like, in, yeah. Uh, <laughs> ashes to ashes, rush to dust. <laughs> um, but I saw there was a really funny tweet that um, if Rush Limbaugh hated gender-neutral bathrooms so much, why why is his grave going to be one? <laughs> and that's just mwah, chef's <laughs> piss. Speaking of which, I'm still. I think my things need five more minutes. Okay.
0: I think I should briefly explain to people that we are making a biscotti from a recipe that I always used to make for my father. They're my father's favorite biscotti. And um, you live close enough to your father now that you could actually bring them to him, see if he likes them. Yes. Um, I'm excited. Right now I've taken the biscotti and I'm doing the this portion of them, which is I baked them once and I'm slicing them into um, logs and I'm going to bake them for the second time so they get that crispy, I got to dunk it in something, vaguely break your tooth sort of hardness.
1: I love the sound of the knife. (laughs) Oh, and I used Guitard. Is that how you pronounce the chocolate? It is. Yeah, Guitard. Here's why they're um, better too is I just read that Hershey's and Nestle's are still using child slave labor for processing the cocoa and Guitard's is all trade-free and good stuff they're American they're out of San Francisco they go and visit the um farms themselves
0: like the one of the women the one of the I forget her name who runs Guitard right now goes out visits the farms make sure everything is ship shape and Bristol fashion and um though things in Bristol weren't so good during the slave trade. So that's probably not a great example, um, <laughs> but <laughs> here, um, hurt. their chocolate is so um, it's so pure good. tasting. It's just so good. Like you get aftertaste after a lot of different chocolate. This is just chocolate. Um, once upon a time, you um, did some speech writing, didn't you? For a man named another live wire, uh, Barack Obama. And Hillary Clinton. So did you suck the funny out of Hillary Clinton? Because women, uh, it must have been hard writing for a woman. I hear they're not that funny.
1: They're not, you know, has a woman ever made you laugh? No, she was so great. I I wrote some of the jokes for her Al Smith dinner um, in 2016. Uh, It was, I think, in early October. um, She used, uh, her opening joke was, um, I'm delighted to uh, be here. I, I, I wanted to see all you nice people that I um, took a break from my rigorous nap schedule. Um, That's right. Because apparently she just yeah. nailed it. She's real, I think she's really funny. She's really self deprecating. Um, you know, President Obama is, has Johnny Carson's timing, he's so good. Um, and so I, you wrote for him for the correspondence dinner? Yeah, for a bunch of them, including I had jokes in the in the infamous one where he went after Donald Trump. I did not write that run. <laughs> Do you remember any of the jokes? The
0: Trump jokes? Uh, any of the Obama jokes? That oh, you wrote? um. Yes. Um, Just in case people don't realize out there that they don't write the jokes themselves.
1: One of he did about and some of its performance was I wrote about Matt Damon, um, who had said he was disappointed in the president's um, uh, performance. And and Obama goes, well, Matt, I just saw the Adjustment Bureau and back at (laughs) you. But he, he, he's just so um, charming the way he does it. My, my biggest regret is the last year I wrote a joke that he, that did not get selected um, that uh, I think would have gotten a big laugh. It went like this. Um, I turned 50 while in office, which meant I had to get my first colonoscopy. And guess what they found? Mitch McConnell, that guy can obstruct anything that joke still is
0: worthwhile
1: it is anyone could use it we could all use that he's up
0: all our butts let's be honest so everybody you may well just something to warn your uh your doctor in case you go for a colonoscopy
1: (laughs) it might be mitch mcconnell you don't have you have Mitch. And what would be ugly? Never mind. I won't be that. Cruel. You know, his birthday's tomorrow, the twentieth. Mitch McConnell. Yeah. What do you What do you get for the man who has ruined everything? That is really good question. I'm sh- I'm I'm sure.
0: Gosh, what do you get him?
1: The man who's ruined everything. I think you um, get him a big steak dinner with butter on top. <laughs> <laughs> like peter luger style um how how cooked should these be they should be um you should they
0: should be firm to the touch not rock hard but they should have just tiniest tiniest bit of give and they shouldn't be too colored just a little bit yellowy golden we're talking about biscotti not the arteries of mitch mcconnell
1: (laughs) but we could be (laughs) it could be um Yeah, how how are they? I'm thinking of doing a fundraiser for the NAACP for old Mitch um, for his birthday because you know they're the ones who filed the criminal lawsuit against the uh, armed insurrectionists. I don't think we should call them rioters. I think they were armed insurrectionists. Okay, so now I cut these and- Let them cool for a few minutes before you slice them up. Otherwise, they'll just crumble into. I'm behind you, though. I don't like
0: that feeling. It's okay. I need to be ahead because I'm supposed to be better at that. You're you're ahead on jokes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, so you, uh, I, I, not you, uh, you, hey, lady, <laughs> um, <laughs> you won. Did you?
1: <laughs> when I do you cut really- these, it's like an
0: inch. Yeah, about an inch, and okay. I use a serrated knife with a bit of a saw, because you might uh, encounter an almond that is a bit recalcitrant, you know, and needs a little bit of firmness and the serration will do it for you. Um, If only we could take that to some of the recalcitrants in Washington. Um, I've noticed a little something that um, has happened since uh, Trump has gone the way of all things. And that is, Maybe it's just better, but the scandals seem a little, they're they're new scandals. It's like, we've stopped thinking about Donald Trump scandals, put them like under a tarp and other weeds, other poisonous mushrooms are popping up like the Lincoln Project, oops, what's going on? (laughs) I mean, do you find any more exciting?
1: Well, I think if the Lincoln Project had stayed on the right, they would have gotten away with it because if you're on the right, all that stuff, the, the, the sexual scandals with little boys, they're fine with that. They're fine with that, exactly. The, the conning people out of money, the like, you know, that they're fine with that. Their mistake was they came over to the good side where you can't get away with that shit. Right, Al Franken
0: like left within minutes of exactly. being accused of looking cross-eyed at a woman and Jim Jordan, anyone? Anyone? Right.
1: I mean, we can make a much longer list. So I think that was their fatal mistake. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. I, I wish they would just give all the money they have left to fair fight and say, you know, we glad, we're, we're glad we helped you defeat Donald Trump. You know, you guys take it from here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Call right. if you want advice. Free advice. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, you the thing. One of the things that you did in your um, existence was you wrote that article. Not like your existence is over. I don't mean to make it sound so glib, uh, glib and um, uh, uh, frivolous. Uh, you know, speaking of scandals, one of the ones that you sort of tried to bring to people's attention was the problems in late night TV, and namely, what it was like to work on the Letterman show. In, yeah. 2000, in 2019, you went to Mr. Letterman yourself and had him read your article. Was that what happened? Like, how did that work out? I, I, that would have taken an enormous, were you thrilled, excited, anxious? Like, how did that feel? Or
1: do you feel emboldened? Well, like, no, it's, hmm. it's interesting. You were just talking to your students about um, apologizing. Cause I think apologies are really powerful. They're not everything, you know, reparations are better, but apologies really are a start for people who have behaved poorly in the past. So in 2009, you know, David Letterman went on camera and said, I have had sex with women who work for me. He very purposely said for me, not with Mm me. (laughs) Um, And there was a lot of attention on that because it was so juicy. He was getting blackmailed. It was, it was a bizarre story. And I saw an opportunity um, because at the time I noticed, Nancy Franklin actually of The New Yorker noticed that there were zero female writers on his show, zero female writers on Jay Leno's show, and zero female writers on Conan O'Brien's show. And those were the three big late night shows at the time. So I saw an opportunity to pivot, to get some attention through the scandal to what I saw as as a different kind of scandal, which was one about gender, not sex. So, you know, the article blew up. It was really great. Within a few months, every one of those shows had hired a female writer. Um, I started being approached by other shows like Jon Stewart to help suggest writers for those shows. And that, add um Jimmy Kimmel and, you know, that's been really great. And, and most of those shows I think now have like four women on their staffs, which is not close to 50% where it should be because the audience is pretty, pretty 50-50. Anyway, so that was great. It was a 10 year anniversary. And I thought um, I wanted to do a follow-up and the follow-up, the only follow-up I thought worth doing was to sit down with David Letterman and say, hey, what's your take on all this? He had not read the article. And so my, my terms were, you've got to read the article and we'll sit down and discuss it. And he, he apologized.
0: Wow, like a a straightforward,
1: this was inappropriate. Both to me that that I didn't have a better time when I was working on the show and Mm -hmm. didn't feel supported. um, And also that he ignored 50% of the population. Now Letterman, I'll say in 32 years, never had a single writer of color which is so shocking. I know I waited for you to take a sip before telling you. (laughs) Nobody could see that I was literally had liquid in my mouth. I mean, it's really, that's uh, so, there's not even someone who can stand up and speak to that anyway. But that was so, you know, and was it meaningful? I don't know, like he had this opportunity for 30 years and he could have changed a lot of people's Mm -hmm. lives and started careers and he didn't do that, so that's sad and you can't get that back. On the other hand, when someone who's that big of a cultural figure acknowledges that they were wrong, I hope that has all sorts of ripple effects through the culture, through the other people who worked on the show and have moved on. Yeah. I mean, it's nice that he did it
0: um... I wonder if, if, if it ever has to happen for right-wing or Republican uh, politicians or if that's just part of part and parcel of how we live now you know does everybody seems to get to survive that stuff right right I realized you know Jim Jordan isn't running for Congress again he's going back home um, but Ted Cruz hopes to do it and Josh Hawley hopes to do it and you know, they, they still get away with sort of dealing with people as if it were 1956.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's why you you constantly have to hold people to account. You know, we just heard from all these women who worked on Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which ended 10 years ago, or I don't even know, maybe longer. And it sometimes takes that long for people to... The courage. I mean, it took me a long time. In fact, when I spoke out about Letterman in 2009, I was on a show and some of the, I was still the only woman on staff. And some of the men, like they, someone would say a sexist comment and another would say, Oh, be careful, Nell's going to write about an article about you. And I would go, Yeah, 23 years from now, you're going to be so sorry you said that. (laughs) almost funny um, <laughs> but now we have our, our cancel
0: culture to live with what do you what's your take what's your fox news take on cancel culture
1: <laughs> all right so i let let's look at where it starts if i i don't think it's actually cancel culture and i don't think it's consequences, okay. consequences culture either i think it's judgment culture so let's go back to the 50s America, lots of judgment. You, you know, you got to be married. You better not be gay. You better, you know, this, how you dress, how you present yourself is really important. Then we get, we hit the counterculture in the sixties of Vietnam war, the hippies, it's free love. It's, it's civil rights. And suddenly, you know, it's drugs. There's this tendency. So, one of the insults I heard all the time in college, maybe you heard this too, was mm-hmm. Nell, you're so judgmental. Yeah. Like, it became a bad thing to be judgmental. Mm-hmm. And I think the left the, sort of adopted that concept of let your freak flag fly. We're not going to judge you. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the right, they just kept judging. <laughs> and and they they weaponized it and the left still had this philosophical sense of, you know we're not going to judge you for that. you know you're, that's your religious beliefs. We respect that um, So now we get to this point where we're starting to go, no, 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 you know you that your religious beliefs are actually racist. <laughs> and we're going to judge you on that or you harass women we're going to judge you on that so I I think it's really it's 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 about time (laughs) it's good (laughs) I've never (laughs) said that before it kind of but I was thinking about it today and I I do think um it's the reckoning of judgment and they love judgment day right that's what they're all living for I know. So let's bring it to them now. I mean, the other thing is I do think cancel culture lives within us all and it's, it's everyone's choice. So like, first of all, you've got to do your own investigation. You got to do your homework. You, you can't just read a tweet and decide someone's horrible. So that's a lot of work now. That's a I'm, really big
0: assumption. And it's, a lot of people really don't feel like they need to go there. That's why I curate my Twitter feed. So I get people to tell me what to think. (laughs) Tell me what to think,
1: what to feel, um, what to eat, because (laughs) some lunches and they look great. So like, you know, Michael Jackson, I've read a lot of stuff about him. I watched that documentary and was shocked and was like, that's it. I don't want to listen to Michael Jackson anymore, except... The Jackson 5 when he was a kid that was before he did all that horrible stuff so I think I can still listen to it okay what about early Woody Allen well I think from Manhattan on he was problematic okay and even can I tell you even as a young woman watching Manhattan it it made me it made my skin crawl and I really I I loved his early movies but, uh, you know, I, I just sleeper is incredible. Oh but from Manhattan on, I was done with him. Right. Your spidey sense tingled. Yeah. 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 It's just something. My witty cool. sense tingled. But, Hell. <laughs> but he could be done. Like he should just, like, that's the thing. Some of these people just like take take the rewards and go somewhere and enjoy the rest of your life and stop. <laughs> being part of our culture you had your moment
0: and you abused the privilege really in a way I mean that's my judgment
1: um, So you uh, I love you- by the way in your um, recipe where you you give permission to eat the crumbs
0: yeah that's the best part of biscotti is the stuff that's left the one cook left so I've taken my biscotti out of the oven which says to me, it's almost time for our podcast to be over. Um, And as you can see, they're a lovely toasty brown. If you're really fastidious, you can turn them over to the other side, but I'm not that kind of person. Now, what are you working
1: on next? Oh, um, I'm supposed to do um, a new show for Netflix. So I'm excited about that. Is it going to be funny? Will it have Pavlov's dog in it? What's it going to do? It, it will be funny. It's <laughs> pretty traditional, going back to the half hour comedy world. Um, and I, uh, I started working on a novel like everyone else during the pandemic. And I'm about 210 pages in, and uh, we'll see. What, like, just is there like a genre of the novel that you could just give us a little taste of? Oh, it's set mm-hmm. in Hollywood. So it's basically all the stories I couldn't tell in my memoir. <laughs> I'm now gonna tell in a novel. <laughs> this
0: is gonna be, a, a, you heard it here first people. Everything in the book, it's fiction. Um, <laughs> and what should I watch on TV tonight? Cause it's Friday.
1: Oh, um, so I, I just watched Alice in Borderland which mm-hmm. is based on an anime. It's Japanese. It's so good. It's really okay. good. The same guy who directed Kingdom, which is, a, which is setting feudal Korea with zombies and so much better than that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think on that note we shall, uh, on the note of uh,
0: feudal Korea with zombies. Yeah that's as mo- here's hoping as most that's, discussions, end. <laughs> as most discussions end may your weekend be devoid of feudal kingdoms <laughs> with zombies unless thank that's you. what you want
1: it's so um, nice to talk to you marissa
0: it's so nice to talk to you too now thank you so much for being on here and i hope you enjoy your cookies or thank your biscotti you. they're fancy, yeah. they're fancy. <laughs> treat them with the respect they deserve um i hope to talk to you soon again I hope you enjoyed The Secret Life of Cookies. A big thank you to Nell for joining me in the kitchen today. My recipes for my daddy biscotti can be found on my website at marissarothkopf.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Marissa Rothkopf, And if you will be so kind, please leave a nice review in the Apple Store. Stay safe and talk to you again next week.